Hey everyone, it's Pacific, and welcome back to another episode of Insidious Inspirations. Just a quick heads up, we'll be off next week, so there will be no new episode on March 8th, but we will be back on March 15th with the Winchester House and the insidious inspirations behind this true story. In the meantime, we need your help. We're actively looking for new stories and movie suggestions, so if there's a story that you would like us to investigate, let us know. The best way to get in touch with us is on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, you can find links to both of our social media profiles by visiting insidious.show or by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. There in your review, you can tell us which movies you'd like to hear about next. And of course, last but certainly not least, if you enjoy the show and you like what we're doing, consider telling a friend. Word of mouth is the best way to get our show into the ears of new listeners. And without further ado, this week's episode. Following the popularity of the first two movies, the Conjuring universe exploded with new entries, including Annabelle Creation, The Nun, The Curse of La Llorona, and Annabelle Comes Home. However, it wasn't until 2021, five years after The Conjuring 2 release, that we finally got the next mainline entry in Ed and Lorraine Warren's story. But, unlike the first two films, this wasn't another haunted house movie. Instead, the third film would follow a strange possession, a chilling murder, and even a courthouse trial. I'm Nicole Goodnight, and this is Insidious Inspirations. The big hook in all of Conjuring 3's promotion material focuses on 19-year-old Arnie Johnson, the first person to use demonic possession as a murder defense. While Arnie's journey is well-documented, there's a second, lesser-known story that leads up to the events of the murder. This week, we'll be looking into the possession of David Glatzel. It all began one fateful summer in 1980. Arnie Johnson and his 26-year-old girlfriend, Deborah Glatzel, were looking to move. They'd lived in the bustling downtown of Bridgeport with Arnie's mom and three sisters, but their apartment was cramped, and Debbie had a long commute to and from work. With the end of their lease approaching, Arnie and Debbie started looking for homes in the countryside away from the chaotic city. Finally, after six months of searching, they found the perfect rental house. It was large, set back off a country road, and even accepted dogs. The couple had a sheepdog named George. Arnie's mother, Mary Johnson, signed the lease and put down the first two months' rent with Arnie and Debbie's help. Now, all that was left was to move in. On July 2nd, 1980, Debbie and Arnie packed up their car and drove to their new home. Excitement and nervousness washed over them. The house was spacious. Split into two parts, the main house on the right and a built-on addition on the left where Arnie and Debbie would be staying. But as the couple walked around the property, it became clear this wasn't quite the dream house they thought it was. The grass was overgrown, the house weathered, and the paint peeled. It'd need a lot of tough love and care, but that was something Arnie and Debbie would do together. Plus, out here in the countryside, life seemed calm. 
They had a large, beautiful oak tree in their front yard. Here, the sound of traffic or sirens wouldn't hassle them. It was peaceful. As soon as they'd soaked it all in, Debbie's family arrived to help the couple move. Judy and Carl Glatzel, Debbie's parents, had brought the whole family, including their three sons, Carl Jr., Alan, and David. Arnie and Debbie brought the Glatzel family inside and gave them a short tour of the house, only stopping when they discovered a waterbed in one of the bedrooms, seemingly belonging to the last tenant. Debbie warned the young boys away from it, afraid they might break it. Of course, as soon as the adults left the room, Carl Jr. and Alan started making waves on the bed and causing childlike chaos. Judy returned and told the boys to leave the bed alone and to help Arnie. Dutifully, Carl Jr. and Alan left, leaving 11-year-old David alone in the room. Despite all of Debbie's excitement, David was glum and quiet. He took the moment of solitude as an opportunity to reflect on all the changes and looked out the bedroom window. Outside, it had begun to sprinkle rain. Then suddenly, with great force, David felt two hands press against his stomach and push him backwards onto the waterbed. Shocked and confused, David spun around, expecting to see his brothers behind him, but he found the room empty. Or so he thought. Someone was standing there behind him, but he was translucent and faint. It was an old man with burnt-looking skin wearing a torn flannel. David looked up and met the apparition's cold, black eyes. Then in an instant, the specter was gone. David cautiously got up off the waterbed, eyes wide in case the old man reappeared. He slowly backed out of the room, keeping his eyes locked on the specter's spot. That's when he heard his older sister's voice. Debbie was calling for David, asking for his help. Heart still racing, David bolted out of the house and planted himself on the front lawn underneath the oak tree. Arnie and Debbie noted David's absence, chalking up his stubbornness to help move as boredom or a tantrum. As the day dragged on, Arnie and Debbie hit roadblock after roadblock. First, they'd have to wait until tomorrow for the waterbed's removal. The landlord hadn't given them a cellar key, which they needed for storage. And then they found the owner's niece living inside the built-on addition. Exhausted and defeated, Debbie and Arnie decided to call it a night. They planned on leaving their dog George at the rental and left to spend the night with Debbie's family. That night, after the whole house had settled down, David turned to his brother Alan and asked if he was still awake. He was. David confessed that he was scared. Something terrifying had happened to him and he couldn't shake it. Then Alan admitted he'd also had a strange experience. He and Carl Jr. had gotten locked in the room with the waterbed after David had left. They pounded on the door, but no one heard them. Together, the brothers decided they'd tell Arnie and Debbie in the morning. They looked up to Arnie, even saw him as an older brother. They believed that if anyone could fix it, he could. When the sun finally rose the next day, David told Arnie and Debbie what had happened over breakfast. They were confused. Arnie prodded for answers, and David described the old man, his white hair, white mustache, torn clothing, his strange tattoos, and something he'd said. David claimed that before the old man had vanished, he had pointed at him and shouted, Beware. But to make matters worse, yesterday wasn't the last time David saw the old man. Last night, when he was confessing these events to Alan, the old man appeared. But he was different. 
he'd turned into some sort of horned beast, and he was upset that David had told the others about him. And there was one more thing. The old man had told David to take down all the crucifixes in their house. Shaken by all this, Debbie and Arnie excused themselves from the rest of the family. Debbie confessed that she was unsure about the move. The couple decided to call Arnie's mother and warn her about the house, but there was no answer. Fearing Mary Johnson had already arrived, Debbie and Arnie set out to the rental. When they arrived, they were relieved to see Mary hadn't made it up yet. The couple made their way inside where they found their dog, George, lying quietly in the living room. George had seemingly had a rough night. His fur was matted and dirty. One of his paws was bleeding, and he'd wet himself sometime in the evening. They also found that George had been clawing at the cellar door. All of this was too much for Debbie. She wanted out of that house right away. But just as they were departing, Arnie's mother arrived with her three young girls in tow. The three girls hopped out of the truck excited to explore their new home. Arnie and Debbie pulled Mary to the side and questioned her about the rental, asking if she'd already signed the lease and paid the deposit. She had. The couple spent the next few minutes detailing their problems with the rental from the waterbed to the cellar and even the occupied attachment. Mary wouldn't hear any of it. She'd already vacated her downtown apartment. This was her home now. And if Arnie and Debbie wanted to abandon her, that was fine. Defeated, Arnie and Debbie left. They'd try to make sense of the whole situation later. When they made it back to the Glatzel house, Arnie and Debbie tried to cool off and figure out what their next steps were. Mere minutes after arriving, David stopped by to check on them. Arnie asked the boy how he was doing, and David said he was fine, but you're not. The ghost man is really mad at you and says you're going to get it because you told Mary Johnson about him. This was the final straw. Debbie snapped. They were going to finish moving out and be done with this horrible new house. So, Arnie and Debbie returned to the rental again, trying to convince Mary to move out, which, of course, was to no avail. A bitter silence filled the rental house as Arnie and Debbie repacked their belongings. Just as they'd finished packing, the previous resident, Tammy, arrived to take apart her waterbed. While Tammy worked, Debbie interrogated her, asking if anything strange had happened while she lived there. At first, Tammy brushed it off, but Debbie pushed on, specifically asking if anything strange had happened in the room with the waterbed. Tammy paused before confirming that sometimes, late at night, she'd hear a voice that seemed to fill the whole room. It'd whisper her name and send chills down her spine. Sometimes she'd hear footsteps in the attic, lights flickering and doors slamming. But once, Tammy even caught a glimpse of an old man with white hair and a white mustache just like David had described. Hearing all of this, Debbie tried once more to convince Mary to move out, but Mary had already made up her mind and said, All I've got to say is that if you leave this house today, don't come back. It seemed like they'd reached an impasse, so less than 24 hours after moving in, Debbie and Arnie left. The next morning was the 4th of July, and the Gletzel family had a whole picnic planned. The weather was warm and spirits were high. Under the sun, David seems warm and happy. The dark fears that pervaded him dissipated in the light. All the stress of the last few days had seemingly melted away. This relief was short-lasting. 
The picnic ends and the family drives home, but when they arrive, David won't leave the car. While the rest of the family unpacks and heads inside, Arnie sits with David and questions him. David claims that the beast entered through the attic while the family was away. Arnie asks what the beast is doing in the attic, and David simply says, He's waiting. While the events of the last few days have been unnerving, Arnie wasn't entirely convinced of the paranormal phenomena. After a short back and forth, Arnie assured David that even if the beast is up in the attic, they'll find a way to get rid of it. Perhaps a little more at ease, David finally agrees to return to the house. Inside, things are seemingly the same. It's peaceful and quiet. The rest of the evening is uneventful. It isn't until everyone's in bed that Debbie hears a bump in the attic. Then a moment of silence, followed by slow, creaking footsteps. Debbie asks Arnie if there's someone up there, but Arnie's silent, listening to the sounds. Everything is quiet, and then three loud bangs sound from the kitchen. Seconds later, they hear scratching at the door, then more stomping in the attic. Now, almost the entire house is awake. Arnie grabs a flashlight and goes to investigate. David pleads, begging Arnie not to go up to the attic. Arnie makes his way up the stairs, turning on the attic light when he reaches the top. As light floods the room, Arnie finds it empty. There's no one up there, just boxes full of old Christmas decorations. But as Arnie is investigating each dark corner, he feels something, a chill run up his spine. Despite the day's earlier heat, the attic is freezing cold. Unsettled, but assured the attic is empty, Arnie climbs back down the stairs. The sounds have stopped, and the night is peaceful once more. July 5th is much like the previous day. While the sun's up, activity seemed to cease. But that night, around 10 p.m., as the Gletzel family is getting ready for bed, strange occurrences start. After some minor commotion, Judy decides to move David into the living room with Arnie and Debbie so that the couple could watch over him. At this point, David's frightened. He claims that he saw the old man in his room just moments ago, but it's late and everyone is tired. The Glatzels get ready for bed and everyone begins to fall asleep. A few short hours later, just after midnight, everyone is awoken by three loud bangs coming from the attic. Judy rushed out of her bedroom to check on David. As she's walking down the hallway, she feels something wet and slimy graze her arm. David is wide awake and frightened. Judy asks what's wrong, and David confesses the old man appeared to him in a bestial form. As David is describing what he witnessed, he stops and stares into a dark corner of the living room. Then, in front of everyone, there's a loud bang and David flies backward. On the floor, David's head knocks sharply one way, then another. The beast punched me, David says. Shocked, tired, and confused, Judy commands the specter to stop. David warns against her commanding the beast ever again. This invisible force was having a real effect on the family, especially David. In the moments following the attack, the whole family reported seeing David's cheeks bright red and swollen as if hit with extreme force. Judy pleads with David, asking him what the old man wants. An exasperated David says, He wants me. A silence swept through the living room. Needless to say, the Glatzel family was exhausted and dawn was still hours away. Although no one could see what David saw, they each felt a heavy presence in the house that night. Slowly, over the course of the next hour, each family member fell into an uneasy slumber. 
At this point, there's no denying the obvious problem. David needs help. The Glatzels are at a loss for options as the next few days brought more of the same. Sleepless nights and strange phenomena. This ghost had taken over their life. Finally, on the morning of July 9th, Judy Glatzel found herself at St. Joseph's Church, waiting for a meeting with Father McDonnell. Over the course of an hour, the father listened as Judy told him each and every event from the last week. Judy hoped the father would dissuade her fears. Instead, he confirmed her worst suspicions. From the loud banging to the assault on young David, everything sounded like your stereotypical possession. Father McDonnell gave Judy several holy candles and some holy water. These items and intense prayer would help keep the demon at bay. Then tomorrow, the father would come and bless the house. He was hopeful that an exorcism wouldn't be required. But when Judy returned home, David was even more upset. He warned that if a priest came into the house, the apparition would be unpleased. Judy tried to push the fear out of her mind. She lit the candles, as the father instructed her to do, and the evil spirit was seemingly gone, at least until midnight, when three distinct knocks hit their front door. Inside the home, something moved about, scattering the holy candles and leaving behind an oppressively cold presence. Without a second thought, Judy calls Father McDonnell, who arrives a short ten minutes later. Of course, as soon as he walks in the door, all activity ceases. But it's easy to see the weariness and fear on the face of everyone in the Glatzel family. The father thoroughly investigated the house before coming to a stop at David. Being an experienced clergy member, McDonald knew that there were plenty of earthly factors that could explain these disturbances. That all changed after the father heard David's first-hand accounts. The father went out to his car, grabbed his travel bag, and began blessing the house with the aura of Christ. Working his way up from the basement to the attic and stopping in every room in between, Father McDonald blessed every inch of the house. This might be enough to stop lesser spirits from terrorizing the family. But if it was as bad as David said it was, the Glatzel home would need an exorcism of the dwelling. A long and complicated ritual that required a lot of time and preparation. Before leaving, Father McDonald also blessed David and led the family in prayer. Then just as quickly as he'd come, he was gone. The Glatzel house felt immediate relief. Perhaps both because someone was taking them seriously and at the minor ritualistic protection. For the first night in over a week, the house was calm, and everyone slept easily. When the spirits returned the following night, they brought reinforcements with them. Reportedly, over 40 evil spirits returned with the old man to terrorize David and his family. Any hope in Judy's heart vanished when she heard the news. She called Father McDonald and updated him on the situation. He had a solution, but they'd need help far more experienced than himself. Unfortunately, this meant getting the church involved, which could be a tedious process drawn over months. If the Glatzels wanted relief from these spirits, they'd have to consult with outside experts. Father McDonald knew of two such people. After the break, Ed and Lorraine Warren traveled to the Glatzel house, but this case is far from over. If you're interested in listening to the show ad-free and getting access to bonus content, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash insidiouspod.
And now, back to our show. At the recommendation of Father McDonald, Judy reached out to Ed and Lorraine Warren, two psychic investigators and demonologists. Judy once again recounted the events plaguing the family over the last two weeks. Among many other questions, Ed Warren asked if David had seen a doctor recently. Judy confessed that he hadn't. They had a family doctor, but she didn't think her son was sick, so she hadn't consulted them. Ed asked if he could bring along a doctor they trusted, and Judy was enthusiastic, encouraging them to bring anyone they thought might help. It was already 10 p.m. at night, but the Warrens promised they'd be there within the hour. Relieved, Judy thanked them and hung up the phone. As promised, just over an hour later, the Warrens and Dr. Anthony Giangrasso arrived. Judy brought the investigators into the kitchen, where they joined Arnie and Debbie. As Ed unpacked his recorder and began to turn it on, Dr. Giangrasso took David into the other room to examine him for any physical ailments. Ed and Lorraine asked the Glatzel family to recount the events one more time. As Arnie, Debbie, and Judy each told the stories from their perspectives, Ed and Lorraine studied them, looking for exaggerations or holes in their stories. After verifying that the events weren't stolen from a TV show or full of subjective statements, the Warrens started digging deeper. When did the paranormal activity begin? Was it present all day long or did it spike after sunset? Had the family ever dabbled in the occult before? Just as Judy answered their first round of questions, Dr. Giangrasso brought David back into the kitchen. He was a perfectly healthy young boy. Now it was David's turn to tell his side of the story. David recounted the waterbed incident and everything leading up to the present, including the recent influx of spirits. All in all, Ed questioned David about his experiences for almost two hours. At the end of a long night, Ed and Lorraine concluded that the Glatzels were telling the truth, at least as they knew it. Furthermore, everything they spoke of seemed to be consistent with the Warrens' knowledge of hauntings. There was plenty of work left to do, but it was time to call it a night. Judy thanked the couple for their prompt response and saw them off. Less than an hour later, as Ed and Lorraine arrived home, they found their phone ringing. David was under attack. Moments later, the couple was back in their car and returned to the Glatzel house. When they arrived, they witnessed David's attack firsthand. As the sun rose the following morning, the presence of the spirits seemed to lift. Eventually, as the day turned to night without incident, the Warrens began packing up. Ed instructed Judy to give him a call if anything strange happened and promised they'd be back the coming days. Ed and Lorraine left, night fell, and by 9 p.m. David reported seeing the specters return. But this night would push the Glatzels to their breaking point. David was in the living room watching TV with Debbie and Arnie when his limbs began to shake and his eyes rolled up into his head. Arnie left to grab holy water while Debbie kept an eye on her younger brother. When Arnie returned, David sat upright and demanded Arnie not to use the water, even threatening to kill him. Arnie was upset. He pleaded with David not to talk like that, then made to spritz holy water on the young boy. David howled and then jumped up and grappled with his brother Alan. After wrapping an arm around Alan's neck, David pulled a penknife from his pocket and pressed the blade to Alan's neck. David demanded Arnie put down the holy water or else he'd kill each and every family member. Arnie complied, and David dropped the knife and made a run for the front door. Fortunately, Arnie was faster and grabbed David before he could escape. He pinned the boy down by his shoulders, doing his best to avoid David's flailing limbs. Arnie scorned David for attacking his brother and speaking so harshly. 
Debbie handed Arnie a nearby Bible and gave him the holy water. Arnie began casting the holy water onto David and reciting a blessing, but it was to no avail. David lunged up and wrapped his hands around Arnie's throat. Debbie interjected, pulling her brother off of Arnie. As David released Arnie, he fell unconscious and held his breath until he was blue in the face. Debbie began panicking. Arnie tried giving him chest compressions and Judy started dialing emergency services. For a painfully long moment, David was unresponsive. Then he drew a deep breath and moaned. He was exhausted but safe for the time being. The next morning was a calm one. While the Glatzel family enjoyed the peace, the Warrens left to confer with Father MacDonald. Together they talked about David's condition and the increasing severity of it all. Both parties had come to the conclusion that an exorcism was necessary. But the Warrens knew the church wouldn't get involved unless there was substantial evidence, which would take time. Meanwhile, the sudden silence at the Glatzel house left Debbie and Arnie feeling uneasy. If the spirit wasn't here causing unrest, it could be at their rental property. Fearing for Arnie's mother and sisters, they headed to the Bridgeport house. When they arrived, Mary Johnson was none too happy. She insisted there was no paranormal activity at the rental house. She believed Arnie's paranoia had infected his sisters. Now they too complained that they were always frightened. To make matters worse, situations at the rental hadn't improved. The built-on addition was still occupied by the former tenant, and the girls were scolded any time they played in the yard. Trying to make amends, Arnie helped his mother with some simple tasks around the house. Despite this, the whole visit was tense. The three young girls each missed Arnie and Debbie's presence, but following their fight? Mary had no interest in letting the couple move back in. This would have to be a fight for another day. What followed was two weeks of tenuous calmness. David's nightly fits had ceased and the banging had stopped. Despite this, an oppressive air hung around the Glatzel house as each family member was on edge waiting for the next paranormal occurrence. On Monday, July 28th, the silence was shattered. The night began with David being flung across the house as he was smacked and punched by an invisible hand. But unlike previous attacks, this one seemed more intense. The hits were harder and the wounds deeper. Then, David was slammed to the floor, legs kicking as invisible hands wrapped around his throat. Judy walked into the living room and shrieked, which gave David the opportunity to rush to his feet. But just as soon as he had stood up, he felt an impact in his gut, causing him to double over and vomit. The following morning, Arnie woke up early and went outside to warm up Debbie's car. As Debbie was inside getting ready for work, a scared David entered her room. Where's Arnie? he asked. Debbie told him and his eyes widened. No, he can't be out there. The old man is in your car, David said. Mere moments later, the engine begins revving. Arnie, confused, feels for the gas pedal and finds it flat against the floor. Glancing up, Arnie sees the silhouette of a man in front of the truck. The shape points toward an oak tree in the lawn. The engine revs again as Arnie pulls the keys out of the ignition and slams the parking brake down. Despite all of this, the car barrels forward and smashes into the tree. Fortunately, Arnie isn't injured. But this marks just another instance of the demonic forces targeting him. Over the course of the next two weeks, three priests from St. Joseph's would visit the Glatzel house every night, each bearing witness to undeniably paranormal phenomenon. Ed and Lorraine Warren would accompany the priests on some of these visits, consulting them on demonology and similar hauntings.
But at this point, the Warrens had done all they could. With no additional evidence to gather, they left the decision to pursue exorcism to the three priests. After much consideration, the three priests referred the Glatzel family to Father Vergulak. On Friday, August 15th, Arnie and Debbie drove down to Stamford to meet the priest. Originally, David and Judy were supposed to accompany them, but given David's reluctance to enter a church, it was out of the question. Debbie wasn't enthusiastic about the trip. They'd been bouncing from person to person for over a month now, and no one had been able to help. Why would this be any different? To their surprise, not only did Father Vergilac believe the family's hardship, but he was also an expert in demonology. After an intense two-hour discussion, the father agreed to attempt an exorcism. It'd take days to prepare, but in the meantime, he'd give Arnie the tools to quell the demon. A silver crucifix, holy salts, a statue, and of course a blessing to protect Arnie from harm. Something stirred in Arnie. He felt as though this was the first true beacon of light he'd seen in months. Arnie would soon have use for his new tools, as the very next night David succumbed to another possession by the old man. It started with curses and insults and turned to degrade the statue Father Vergilac had given the family. David even seemed keen to the knowledge he'd have no way of knowing, like the father's name and the planned exorcism. Judy truly believed that the old man was talking through David. This time, Arnie was prepared to fight back. Arnie had to fight through tears as he leaned down and pressed the silver crucifix into David's forehead. He compelled the demonic force to leave David alone and even challenged the demon to come into him. This was Arnie's greatest mistake. On Sunday, August 17th, Father Vergilac drove to the Glatzel's house and met with the family, Ed and Lorraine Warren, and the three priests who'd been watching over the family. Together, each party sat down and discussed the next steps. Ed believed that this was a clear-cut case of demonic possession which had progressed through all the stages and is present throughout most of it. But the father wasn't keen on performing a full exorcism. He had hoped that a lesser exorcism might clear David of any lingering spirits. Three days later, on August 20th, the lesser exorcism began. Father Vergilac was accompanied by the three priests who'd witnessed the Glatzel's struggle. Together, they'd lead the family in Mass, first receiving communion, then reading prayers, before finally blessing David one last time. The whole ordeal was finished by four o'clock, and according to all sources present, it seemed successful. The Glatzel family once more entered into cautious optimism. David seemed free from his sour moods and started acting like a young kid again. As a token of gratitude, he even used some recently acquired birthday money to buy Ed and Lorraine a thank-you present. When the Warrens visited the Glatzel home that weekend, they were pleasantly surprised by the small ceramic duck David had wrapped for them. Ed was optimistic that the final blessing of the house would end the Glatzel's problem. And for a few days, it did. As the weekend came to an end, so did the freedom from the supernatural. By August 25th, David seemed to be fully possessed by the old man once more. Nights would alternate between fits of violence as David was attacked by unseen forces, and full-on possessions where David would try to attack family members. One fateful night saw David attempt to stab his brother Alan in the stomach. Fortunately, Arnie was present and able to grab David's wrists moments before the stabbing occurred. This only enraged the entity controlling David. The boy screamed at Arnie and even threatened to possess him for this transgression. The old man made good on his promise as the very next day he possessed Arnie. Just for a minute, at first. 
Arnie was sitting at the kitchen table with Debbie and her parents when suddenly he started convulsing. Just as soon as the convulsion started, they stopped. This would make the first of six similar episodes for Arnie. Fortunately, help was on the way. Following the resurgence of spirits, the Warrens met with Father Virgilac once more. After a brief discussion, the father agreed that a major exorcism was necessary as soon as possible. Father Virgilac sought approval from the church, even including photos and audios recorded by the Warrens. A few days later, they had their answer. Father Virgilac would host a deliverance at St. Joseph's. The Warrens were dismayed to learn that this meant the church had denied the father's request for a ritual Romanum. Despite this, the father would still perform a true exorcism, just using a different rite. To prepare themselves for the ritual, Father Virgilac and all participating priests would pray and fast for three days straight. On Tuesday, September 2nd, the exorcism began. According to all eyewitnesses, it was a terrifying and exhausting affair. David was strapped down, anointed with oils, and then the ritual began. The priests prayed, and Father Virgilac cast the spirits out of David. All the while, David spat curses, kicked, screamed, and hollered. Two hours later, all but four powerful spirits had been cast out by the priests. According to Lorraine Warren, the final four spirits were lust, gluttony, gaitoy, and the old man. Lorraine revealed that the old man, the power keeping the other spirits present, was the devil himself. Father Virgilac pushed on for another hour more until David started choking and turning blue in the face. The father feared that continuing any further might result in the death of David. So the exorcism stopped and David was left with four powerful spirits residing in him. On September 8th, Father Virgilac performed a second exorcism on David. While David was much more cooperative, the ritual was again unsuccessful, and later that very night, David would have again become possessed. Fortunately, Ed Warren had one more trick up his sleeve. Ed had an assistant of his, Paul Bartz, to monitor David. Should the boy come under possession again, Paul was to call Ed and inform him. Just past midnight, it happened. Paul rushed to the kitchen phone and called Ed, who was at his home in Monroe, Connecticut. One important part of an exorcism is a binding ritual, something that hadn't been approved for David's case. Ed took it upon himself to bind the demonic force attacking David. While Father Virgilac performed the third exorcism in Brookfield, Ed began a binding ritual in Monroe. Together, the two forces were able to draw the devil out of David. With their power source gone, the three remaining greater spirits had nothing to latch onto and exited the boy's body. David collapsed. For the first time in over two months, he was finally free. But this didn't mark the end of the Glatzel tragedy. Following this, the old man's spirit would focus on Arnie, supposedly whispering to him late at night, and eventually pushing him to kill his landlord in a fit of rage. It's hard to determine where the paranormal ends and the very real symptoms of exhaustion, anxiety, and pressure begin. By all accounts, Arnie was a kind and soft-spoken young man who made an awful mistake. Following the murder, Arnie's lawyer attempted to use the defense of demonic possession. The presiding judge ruled that possession could not be proven and thus rejected the notion. Arnie Cheyenne Johnson was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison for first-degree manslaughter. While in prison, Arnie and Debbie got married, and after serving five years, Arnie was released for good behavior.
Our host is Nicole Goodnight. Tonight's writer was Pacific S. Obadiah. Our editor and musician is the incredibly talented Danny Sweet. I'm your showrunner, Pacific S. Obadiah, and our producers are Tom Owen and Brad Miska. And this is a bloody disgusting show. For more information, visit insidious.show.